Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Can you say praise the Lord this morning, wherever you may be? What a blessing and worship. Thank you, Brad Woods and uh, Brian Davis and uh, our good friend Dalton Smith. Uh, we had teams this morning that made up from nine milers and Spanish trailers, and we are so blessed at Hillcrest, and we appreciate their very capable leadership. And I hope you've had the opportunity Wherever you may be, in your living room, maybe you're still in the bedroom, maybe you're uh, out and about, whatever the case might be, I hope you're able to take a few moments, get quiet, let's worship the Lord together in spirit and in truth. Isn't it a remarkable thing to be able to gather together this way, even when we can't be together? We just praise the Lord. This had happened 30 years ago. Man, I don't know what we would have done as a church, but we can stay connected through technology, and we're so grateful for that. Uh, special good morning to my family today, <clears throat> both in Pensacola and in the Nashville, Tennessee area. It's uh, great to be able to encourage them this morning and all of our Hillcrest Church family and all the Hillcrest friends around the world, wherever you may be this morning, we're happy to have you here uh, with us today. We'll be doing this, as Dan said a moment ago, again next Sunday. No gathering at our church on April the 5th. And I'm excited about communion next week. We're going to do kind of a virtual communion. And so gather all your supplies up. Uh, I may have just uh, created a run at the grocery store on grape juice and crackers. I hope not. Hopefully there's plenty of that around. Uh, but I'm going to lead you through that time next week as we think about the Passion Week of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, for this morning, I want you to take a copy of God's Word in whatever form you may have it and come with me to the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And remember, too, that throughout the morning and at the end of uh, this service today, if you need to connect with a pastor in any way, go to our email link. Just email prayer at hillcrestchurch.com. Dot com Prayer at hillcrestchurch.com. Let us know what your need is. Let us know what your decision is. Let us know how we can help you. And pastors uh, are and will be standing by to be a blessing to you all throughout the morning today. This morning, uh, as we're in 1 Samuel 17, and as you're finding that passage, I would like to speak to you on the subject concerning the giants we face in our journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 1960s, there was a section of the United States Government Peace Corps Manual for Volunteers of the Peace Corps. Uh, these particular volunteers would have been serving in the Amazon region of South America. And in that manual, there's a section entitled, What to Do in Case You Are Attacked by an Anaconda. Now, you're well aware probably that an anaconda, anaconda is a giant snake. They can grow to be as long as 35 to 40 feet in length, and they can eat an animal weighing up to 400 pounds. And these volunteers needed to know, as they were meandering about out in the jungles of South America, what to do in case they were attacked by a giant anaconda. Here's the 10-point set of reminders. Don't run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Place your arms tight by your side and your legs tightly together. Number three, tuck in your chin. Number four, the snake will come and begin to nudge 
and climb all over your body. Number five, do not panic. Number six, after the snake has fully examined you, it'll begin to swallow you from the feet end. Always from the feet end. Number eight, or number seven, permit the snake to begin to swallow your feet and ankles. Number eight, do not panic. Number nine, when the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down and take your knife and very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth and then suddenly rip upward, severing its head. Number 10, don't forget to have your knife. Can somebody say amen this morning? You know why I told that story? Because there are some things worse than coronavirus. Amen. And one of those things would be facing off with a giant anaconda. I wouldn't be able to do any of this stuff. I would just keel over and die right there. Now, here's the point. You may never have to wrestle a 35-foot snake ever in your life, and I surely hope I don't, and I hope that you don't either. But you will from time to time have to face off with a giant of some kind. And even though the giant is large and the threat the giant imposes is ominous and foreboding, God's people don't have to be afraid. We already have before us, around us, and within us a conquering king, a warrior of all warriors who has already won the battle. As we open our Bible to first chapter, uh, first Samuel 17, we find a shepherd boy named David facing the greatest challenge of his young life. This is one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. We've been reading about it, studying about it, telling stories about it since the time of our infancy, growing up in Sunday school as we did. I can remember teachers using flannel graphs to tell us the story about David facing off with a literal giant whose name was Goliath from Gath. What do you do when you face off with a giant? Well, what about what I'm about to tell you this morning basically is a synopsis that helps to define how to kill a giant in three easy steps. Step number one, remember the source of your power. Remember the source of your power. As this very famous encounter begins, we see that battle lines are drawn between the nation of Israel, the army of the Lord God, the nation of Israel on one side and the Philistines on the other. Look at 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, verse 2, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood... Uh, on the mountain on the other side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him, kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. You know what's very obvious in these verses that we've read this morning in this very lengthy chapter is that Israel is anything but courageous and heroic. That's not the Israel that we've been used to up to this point. There was a time in the not-too-distant past where no foe was too great for Israel. No opponent was too intimidating for this greatest of all armies on the planet. But now things are different, and obviously so. And the reason for this dramatic change, I think, can be traced directly to the top, to something that had happened in the life of the king of Israel. Because if you go back one chapter earlier in 1 Samuel 16, The Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul had become, as the leader, pretty much independent of God. He distanced himself from God. He began to lead in his own strength and his own wisdom. And there's a reason that the Bible says we ought not be wise in our own eyes. Saul believed himself to be wise enough to lead this incredible nation, the chosen people of God, on his own. He began to do life on his own. He began to ignore the law of God, the precepts of God, the statutes, and the very wisdom of God. And as a result, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. That's probably the most consequential thing that's been said about anybody in the Bible. Can you think of anything worse than to have had the Spirit of God anointing you and then have that Spirit of God removed from you? Because the end result of that is that you lose the source of your power. And Saul had lost his. And because the leader was powerless, that soon bled over to the people of God. And before you knew it, everybody was given over to a spirit of fear. There is a reason the Bible says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's what had happened to Israel. When Saul had been anointed king, everybody loved him. Everybody cheered him. He was a champion among the people of God because the people of God were struck by his remarkable authority and his incredible strength. He stood a full head taller than everybody else. He was an ancient version of George Washington. It said that whenever Washington walked into a room, he was always head and shoulders above the rest, and that would have been true with Saul But things are different now. Now the people of God are fearful and weak because the leader has become fearful and weak. And the end result's not at all hard to recognize. They'd become disconnected from the source of their power and their disconnection from the source of their power resulted in their miserable condition, one marked by fear and absolute uncertainty, no confidence whatsoever. 
I read a story not long ago about an international missionary by the name of Herbert Jackson. And he had been assigned by his mission board a very old car to drive. And often that car would not start. It was a very unreliable car. And soon it became so bad that it wouldn't start without a push. So every morning for two years, Dr. Jackson would walk uh, to the school near his home and he would retrieve several children to help him push the car in order to get it revved up and going every morning. And as he would make his daily routine, he would either leave the car running or make sure that he had parked it at the top at the crest of a hill so that he could just get back into it and kind of give it a gentle push down the hill and the car would start. He did this every day for two years. Now, he was approaching retirement, and a new missionary was assigned to take his place. And as the new younger missionary got there, he began to get oriented about uh, his new surroundings, and it was time to introduce him to this automobile that he was inheriting. And he was, Henry Jackson began to talk to him about the procedure for uh, starting the car. And the missionary said, well, uh, let me take a look at this. And the new guy popped open the hood and he began to look around. He saw a cable coming, sticking out from a battery that looked like it was in a place that didn't belong. It was loose. So he asked if he had a couple of tools he could borrow and he got them and he made an adjustment here, an adjustment there, and then got into the car and turned the key and guess what happened? Engine roars to life. Turns out the necessary power was there all the time. Problem was, there was a bad connection. For two years, that man had lived with an absence of power in his automobile, unnecessarily so. All that needed to happen was to reestablish the connection. Now, isn't that so often the case with you and with me in our times of spiritual anemia, in our times of weakness, in our times of discouragement. And who often gets the blame? So often we blame the Lord, don't we? When the problem the entire time is that we've become disconnected from the very source of power. I'm just saying, if you're a born-again believer, you've got the power. Amen. That power, though, is like electricity in an outlet or, or like water in a tap. In order to experience it in order to get it, even though it's there all the time. You've got to connect to it, and you've got to turn it on. And the reason the confidence that we had in the good times often gives way to pessimism and cynicism in the bad times is because we become disconnected to our most important power source, and that is the Spirit of God. Let me tell you, you can try to fight an anaconda in your own strength, but you're probably not going to win the fight. In the spiritual world, you try to do that, it's like trying to fight a giant snake without a knife. I'm reminded of the great confession of Paul to the Colossians where he says, you remember this statement we were studying Colossians? To this end, I struggle. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Paul knew that as an apostle, as a gospel preacher, as a frontier missionary, he didn't have what it takes. He didn't have what it took to survive. He didn't have what it took to preach the gospel consistently. He needed power. And so he made it very clear. My success, 
my life, any fruitfulness that comes out of my life is directly related to the struggle that I'm fighting, not in my own strength, but in the very power of the Spirit of the living God who worketh mightily within me. You know what the source of our power is, brothers and sisters? How about the cross? How about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Look to the cross. Lift high the cross. Keep your eyes on the cross in your life. And I'm telling you, living through this coronavirus epidemic, it's, trying to, it's like trying to box an invisible man. We're not quite sure how to fight it. Our leaders are doing the best they can. We at the church are doing the best we can. But it's like trying to fight with an enemy, an opponent you cannot even see. But I'm telling you, this or any other giant we face is not beyond the power and the might and the authority of a sovereign God. Can you say amen this morning? Our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that we ask or even imagine, the Bible says. So stay connected to the power. You got to do it if you're going to slay the giants in your life. A second thing we learn from this very familiar story Stay connected to the power. Remember the source of your power. Second, never be intimidated by size. There's an old saying. You remember what it is? Finish the sentence. It's not so much the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the what? Oh, I heard that. The size of the fight in the dog. One of my most prized possessions is an autographed baseball card. I've got a halfway decent collection of baseball cards. I've been collecting them since I was a kid. And one of my prized possessions is uh, this autographed baseball card uh, of legendary pitcher Carl Hubble, King Carl Hubble, pitched in the 1930s for the New York Giants. Won 253 games. Carl Hubble's in the Hall of Fame. And uh, he's in the Hall of Fame because he won nearly 300 ball games as a starting pitcher. And not, not only that, he led the New York Giants, his team, to the 1934 World Series Championship. But here's what he's most remembered for. If you know anything about baseball, you know the greatest story about Carl Hubble involves what he did in the 1934 All-Star Game that was played on his home field in the pol old polo grounds that doesn't exist anymore, the home of the New York Giants, the old polo grounds in New York City. Carl Hubble didn't start the 1934 All-Star Game, but he came in in relief. And the first three batters that he faced in the American League lineup were these guys, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Jimmy Fox. Now, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, legendary the New York Yankees, the most feared left-handed batters in Major League Baseball in the day. Jimmy Fox played for the Boston Red Sox. He was the most feared right-handed batter of the day. And those were the first three guys that Carl Hubble faced. You know what he did? He came in and he struck them out back to back to back. And then he came in the next inning, struck out the first two batters in the next inning for five batters in a row. He put them down. And he became legendary simply for striking out the most feared hitters in baseball one right after another, which wasn't supposed to happen. Carl Hubble had practically uh, perfected a new pitch that was called the screwball. And when he was asked how he managed to strike those guys out, 
He simply said he just wasn't intimidated by them because he was confident that they couldn't hit his best pitch. They couldn't and they didn't. David was facing that kind of a lineup in terms of its toughness. Only worse, because it wasn't a game that was on the line, and this wasn't a game. Life and death were on the line. David faced off with a giant whose name was Goliath. And no matter how you size him, he was a big boy, frightening man, ominous, threatening. We're told that he stood nearly 10 feet tall. Huge helmet on his head, armor, chain of mail, all of that stuff he was wearing weighed over 125 pounds. He carried a spear. The tip of his spear alone weighed in at 15 pounds. And this is where the young teenage David enters the picture. We're told beginning in verse 17 that David originally wasn't on the battlefield. He wasn't anywhere around. David was the youngest of eight brothers, you'll remember. And he was back home with his father, Jesse. The three oldest brothers of David were in the army of Saul. and They were there on the battlefield. Jesse is racked with grief. He's concerned. He wants to know what's happening there on the front lines with his boys. So he tells David, I want you to go take them some bread and take them these cheeses and find out what's happening. Give them a good word. Tell them I'm thinking about them and tell them I want to know everything that's going on and bring me back information about my sons. Look at verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, the thing that you're going to find out about that is that when David shows up and sees the whole scene, not just sees Goliath, but sees Goliath and then sees the army of Israel and sees how the army of Israel is initially reacting, to what they see in the giant they faced, he couldn't believe it. I mean, this is a kid, and he can't believe what he sees, and he cannot believe what he hears. All this fear and trembling. But I tell you what got him most of all, it was that mouth. It was that big, fat mouth on Goliath that got his goat more than anything else. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David was astounded. He couldn't believe that the army of Israel would let an overgrown, uncircumcised, bull-worshiping pagan Talk about their king and their God and talk about that army the way they were 
allowing him to talk. Man, David's ready to fight. He's ready to start stirring up dust. Even though on paper, man, this is the greatest mismatch of all time. I mean, when David goes to Saul to volunteer to represent Israel, the king just finds it utterly ridiculous. He can't even believe what he's hearing. The only thing to Saul that was more ridiculous than his army trying to face off with this giant called Goliath was David trying to face off with this giant called Goliath. Verse 33, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. David was young. David was inexperienced. David didn't know better. David was a 98-pound winkling, yet David was not intimidated. And the question has to be raised, why not? Why is David not intimidating by the size of his enemy? Well, for one, he remembered how God had worked in his life in the past. Now, if y'all were with us last week, we looked at Psalm 4, which was a Psalm David wrote near the end of his life. Today, we kind of go back to the future, to the beginning of David gave his life. But both of those experiences, when the giant faced, uh, when the giant David faced at the end of his life was basically his son taking over the kingdom. And when David faced the giant, the little giant called Goliath, the one thing that he does consistently in both of those experiences is he remembers how God had worked in his past. And that's why he wasn't intimidated by the size of the giant here. He'd faced giants before, even in his young life. And he remembered how God had given them the power to overwhelm them and to overcome them. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. Only thing missing there is a tiger. Amen. Struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. I'm just saying if David had had a den, in that den wouldn't have been heads of nine-point bucks. In that den would have been heads of big old bears, heads of lions with massive and impressive manes. And you know why they would have been there? Kind of like when we hang diplomas on the wall. I got diplomas on my wall, certificates, recognitions. I don't put those there to impress anybody that walks into my office. I put them there because there was a time in my life I wasn't sure God could accomplish one thing through me. Not a thing. I didn't think I had anything to offer God. I was nothing. And they're there for me to look at to remind me in my times of weakness and intimidation that God is the source of my strength and that God is the overcomer of my life and that I don't have to be afraid and that I can face big-time obstacles confidently in the strength of Jesus Christ. The heads of those lions and bears would have been trophies of the grace of God for David. Reminders of what the power of God had accomplished in and through his young, skinny, weak life. Let me just tell you, never forget what God's done in your past. Make a litany, make a list, keep a journal 
And never forget those victories because remembering how God has delivered you from lions and bears in your yesterdays will help keep you strong as you face Goliaths today. Never be intimidated by size. And then finally, always fight with the right weapons. That's how you kill a giant. You're never intimidated by size. You remember the source of your power. Always fight with the right weapons. Don't fight with weapons that you can make. Don't go out in your own strength. For whatever reason, Saul eventually gives David permission to face the giant. That was a risky thing to do, and I'm not sure really why he did it. The Scripture doesn't say why. Maybe he saw something in David. But this was a risky business because the kingdom was at stake. Because whoever lost, remember, as we read a moment ago, whoever loses the battle, the face-off between the two, has to serve the other. That would mean if David loses the face-off, the armies of Israel have to capitulate to the Philistines. And that would have been a total disaster. Thinking it would be of some benefit to the young shepherd, Saul tries to help him. Look at verse 38. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I can't go with this, for I've not tested them. In other words, I'm not used to them. I've never worn armor in my life. I don't know how to use this stuff. I can't hardly stand erect with all this stuff on. The Bible says, so then, David, what? Put them off. Namely, the weapons of the world. David was wise to do that. He's wise to say no, because those weren't the right kind of weapons. Now, they were good weapons. They were probably the best weapons. I mean, name brand, top of the line, untarnished. I mean, these were the king's weapons. This was the king's armor. They would have come from the Brooks Brothers of the day. It would have come from the top armament manufacturers of the day. The top forgers of the day would have manufactured them especially for the king. But here's the problem. As it related to David, they were somebody else's weapons, and they didn't fit the warrior. And some weapons are not fitting for the people of God. So David goes out the same way he came in, with the only weapons he knew how to fight with, his sling and his staff. That's all he had to battle a giant. The only thing he added, remember, was what? Five smooth stones. Not even big ones. They had to be able to fit in that sling. Man, I'd have been picking up cannonball rocks everywhere I could have found them. Five smooth stones, river stones. So he went out with that, but more importantly, he went out with armor, just not the king's. He went out with God's invisible armor which is the most important 
weaponry we can outfit ourselves with as we face giants today. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 40, then David took off or took his staff rather in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached, he approached, he ran to, he ran toward the giant. There's a reminder that whenever you go into battle, and by the way, life is a battle, it's a constant battle, and it will be a battle until one day we enter into the new heaven and the new earth where battles will cease once and for all and forever. But we're not there yet. So in our journey with Jesus in a broken, fallible, fallen world, life is a battle. It has been a battle. It will always be a battle. And as you battle the giants that are inevitable in life, you better make sure that you put on the whole armor of God. Because without the power of God, you're fighting spiritual giants with physical weapons. And every giant you face, whether it's a physical person or a physical circumstance or a physical thing, it's all still a spiritual battle. And you're never going to fight it, or you're never going to win it if you fight it with physical weapons. The greatest weapon that David had was simply his confidence in the living God. How confident are you today in these uncertain times? I mean, you've got to live confidently because if you don't, you're going to suffocate. You're making a statement to yourself, to your family, to everybody around you that the circumstance is bigger than God is. And you can't live that way. Your confidence has to be rooted in the person and power of God. And that was the case with David because you can tell it, it's evidenced in the last thing that David says to Goliath before the fur starts to fly. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Ain't no confidence bound up in that, is it? Unbelievable. 98-pound, know-nothing, teenage weakling, full of the Spirit of God, and as a result, full of the power and confidence of God. Verse 47, all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Man, you got to love that. And the rest of the story you probably know, don't you? The Bible says that David aggressively pursued that giant. He ran to him, not away from him. He didn't let the giant. I was taught when I played baseball as an infielder, you didn't, you didn't stand back on your haunches waiting for the ball to come to you. When there was a ground ball hit your way, you came to the ball, aggressively pursue the ball. David aggressively pursued the giant. He slung the stone, and it struck the giant with a mighty blow, sinking deep, the Bible says, into his forehead. Verse 49, and when that happened, the giant 
fell on his face to the ground. And watch this, verse 50. There was no sword in the hand of David. That may be the most important statement in all of 1 Samuel 17. There was no sword in the hand of David. Why not? Because he didn't need one. He had something better. The weapons of our warfare, the Bible says, are not worldly, not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. He didn't need a sword because he had better weapons. The weapons of our warfare are prayer, faith, faithfulness, righteousness, peace, joy, and the word of God and I'm telling you, when you outfit yourself with those kinds of weapons, when you put on the whole armor of God, you're facing the giants in your life, not with the power of your own strength, not with the power and the resources of your own mind. You're facing giants in the power of God. And when you and I do that, brothers and sisters, there is no way that we will lose the battle. We might lose our lives. But that doesn't mean, for, as a believer, that you've lost the battle. Sudden death for a believer means sudden glory for the child of God. So we don't even have to be afraid to die. Because whether by life or by death, we win. Because of the presence and power of Christ in us. And because, to say it again... Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. We're facing a giant these days, no doubt about it. For many of us, we're facing more than one giant at the same time. Giant of infection, a giant of joblessness, a giant of potential broken finances, an uncertain future, lots of giants, is roaming the, uh, giants roaming the landscape these days. Even death itself looms large. But I'm just saying, I know something for sure from the Bible. And that is that the giants we face can and will be defeated if you confront them one day, uh, one way. Here's how you kill a giant in three easy steps. Never forget the source of your power. Never, never be intimidated by size. And always go into battle equipped with the right spiritual weapons. When we as the people of God start to live like that and continue to live like that, giants will fall and the whole world we'll know that there is a God in Israel. This is God's word. And wherever you may be this morning, can you just shout amen and amen.